Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Please open your sutra books if you need them for the verse of purification on page three in the spiral bound books. Purification. All the harmful karma ever committed by me since of old, caused by my beginningless greed, anger, and folly, born by body, mouth, and thought, I now confess and purify it all. All right. Then I will start with a couple of excerpts from the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address, as I often do. And... The subtitle of this is Greetings to the Natural World, Words Before All Else. The people. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living beings. So now we bring our minds together as one as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are one. The Earth Mother. We are all thankful to our Mother, the Earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our Mother, We send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. The enlightened teachers. We gather our minds to greet and thank the enlightened teachers who have come to help throughout the ages. When we forget how to live in harmony, they remind us of the way we were instructed to live as people. 
with one mind, we send greetings and thanks to these caring teachers. Now our minds are one. So this is just one minute of a two-hour Thanksgiving address that is traditional. But since I have a few words to say and I know that we all will understand that this is the briefest of excerpts, I will go on. I am so thankful to be here with all of you snug inside the snowflakes that have been swirling around, softly falling and creating a beautiful white blanket on the mountain, the trees, the rocks. So thankful particularly because I know we cannot take anything for granted. Will we all be here next year? Just this giving thanks that we can be together now as one sangha, one family of friends in faith, in spiritual accord. I realized talking with some of you earlier today how long lived this wonderful sangha at Daibosatsu Zendo the Zen Studies Society is looking around, seeing a few more people on chairs, seeing, feeling myself, many of us with ears that are amplified to some degree with hearing aids, and with all the various physical changes of each moment passing. And it speaks volumes to how important this place is now in its 43rd year. And seeing so many new, fresh faces, young people recognizing the power and the promise of this practice, digging into it, feeling the embrace of it. Indeed, these three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, are so precious. 
no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, we find in our deepening practice the wherewithal to respond appropriately to our lives. I started my talk today with a verse of purification. In the spirit of acknowledging and atoning for the collective karma of this nation. Four hundred years ago, 1619, a ship carrying about 20 enslaved Africans arrived in Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British Virginia colony. Though America did not even exist yet, their arrival marked the beginnings of the system of slavery on which the country would be built. The Virginia colony was also the intended destination for another ship just a year or two later. A ship called the Mayflower carrying 35 members of the radical English separatist church who were escaping religious persecution. Storms blew the ship off course. And as we know, in 1621, they landed at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. And after a year during which half of them perished due to disease, they held a triumphal rejoicing. Now, we all know the commodified version of what came to be known as Thanksgiving. Eating a lot, traveling by air, by car, shopping. What's tomorrow called? Black Friday. Black Friday. We strongly encourage you to stay for Rohatsu. <laughs> and then there's Cyber Monday. I don't know what that is. Does anybody? Shop online instead of at the mall. Ah, uh, shopping more, 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 more. 
So many of us grew up with a thanks to the Thanksgiving story about how the Indians helped the pilgrims survive that first winter and how the pilgrims, feeling very grateful to them, put on a big feast and invited them to join. So um, in recent times, we've learned a little more about the circumstances of that first gathering. In an article called The Invention of Thanksgiving, in this issue of The New Yorker, Philip Deloria writes, the first Thanksgiving was not a Thanksgiving in pilgrim terms, but a rejoicing. An actual giving of thanks required fasting and quiet contemplation. A rejoicing featured feasting, drinking, militia drills, target practice, and contests of strength and speed. It was a party, not a prayer, and was full of people shooting at things. Now the Indians were Wampanoags, led by Usamekin, who is the very renowned leader and diplomat of his day. And it seems that the pilgrims did not extend a warm invitation to their Indian neighbors. Rather, the Wampanoags showed up unbidden. And it was not simply four or five of them at the table. Osamekin arrived with perhaps 90 men, more than the entire population of Plymouth. They came not to enjoy a multicultural feast, but to aid the pilgrims. Hearing repeated gunfire, they assumed that the settlers were under attack. After a long moment of suspicion, the pilgrims misread almost everything that Indians did as potential aggression. The two peoples recognized one another in some uneasy way and spent the next three days together. No centuries-long continuity emerged from that 1621 meetup, Deloria writes. Why not? Why wasn't there centuries long continuity of mutual accord and assistance? Has any of you ever heard of the doctrine of discovery? 
What was that? The doctrine of discovery established a spiritual, political, and legal justification for colonization and for the seizure of land not inhabited by Christians. This doctrine has been invoked since Pope Alexander VI issued the papal bull Interchaetera in 1493. The main theory of that papal declaration was that indigenous peoples, because they were non-Christians, were not human. And therefore, the land was empty and free for the taking. When Columbus arrived in 1492, records show that there were 100 million indigenous peoples on this continent, about one-fifth of the human race at the time. And their ancestors had arrived some 15,000 to 24,000 years before. So, to say the land was empty must feel very strange to us, right? Nobody was living there because they weren't Christians. The papal decree aimed to justify Christian European explorers' claims on land and waterways they quote-unquote discovered. And of course, promote Christian domination and superiority. Now, this doctrine is not something that is no longer in effect. This may be of uh, consternation, cause for consternation. Are you aware that this doctrine continues today? It's been applied in Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and the Americas. It has continued through the Monroe Doctrine of the 1800s, Manifest Destiny, which justified American expansion westward, and the doctrine of Christian discovery is still considered by the Supreme Court as valid law, law of the land. You want some land? Look around. Any Christians on it? It's yours. At a conference 
this past August, held at the Onondaga's Scannell Center and at Syracuse University. Onondaga faith keeper Orrin Lyons and other speakers noted that the doctrine of Christian discovery has emboldened transnational corporations to further their extraction practices, forcing standoffs and migration of indigenous peoples, and the destruction of Mother Earth. So we can see this is extraordinarily powerful, this doctrine, and has had very terrifying effects. We've seen how it's played out and how it's manifested what we call in Buddhism the three poisons. What are they? Greed, anger, delusion, or ignorance, or folly. And it has brought us to this point where we are really in crisis. The climate crisis and the doctrine of discovery are integrally related. So you may ask, how can we respond? We Buddhist students of goodwill, of caring hearts, what can we do? You know, we're all in this together, whether we were born in America, in Japan, in Iran, Thailand, whether our ancestors came over on the Mayflower or fled from pogroms in Russia, in the 20th century, we are all in this together. As the Buddha taught, and as we, through our practice, have come to feel very deeply, each one of us is a vital part of an interconnected web of being. We can learn from the indigenous elders who are now stepping up to guide us, who are coming forth to give us their message that we must act 
that we must stop our ways of violating Mother Earth and that we can do this together. We may have to do it in spite of our government. We may have to be climate gorillas. We can do this. We must do this. We must do this as though, as the Lotus Sutra reminds us, our hair is on fire. We may not have hair, but we are in a burning building. This is our era, our absolute necessity in which we must act with courage and conviction, with gratitude for all the myriad beings who support us, for the miracle of this moment together. We must vow to purify our hearts and live simply, freeing ourselves from selfish desires, from self-absorbed motivation, and really take upon ourselves what our Bodhisattva vow demands to save all beings from suffering, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how hopeless it may feel at times. Nonetheless, we sit down, we breathe in and out fully with the thankful heart that we can do this, that we can then get up from our cushions and exert all of our heart, our loving kindness for everyone on this planet. As Shakusoen Roshi said, Self-sacrifice, from a Buddhist point of view, is gratitude. And gratitude is another word for compassion. End quote. Sometimes it feels very difficult to have the fullness of gratitude in our hearts. We may be aware of things that are so heartrending that it's hard to say thank you. And yet, from this practice, of Zazen, no matter what 
coming from this Buddha mind, we do say thank you for it all. And no one has expressed this more beautifully in the contemporary world than the poet W.S. Merwin, who passed away earlier this year. So I know I have read this poem to you before, some of you, but I will read it again. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it. Standing by the windows, looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door, and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you with the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving dark as it is. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.